Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 41 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 3, Episode 40 for Part 1 of this two-part case. You can now pre-order your copy of our new book, They Walk Among Us, available on Thursday, May 30th, 2019, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Joyce McKinney's parents had come over from America to support their only daughter while she was on bail. Upon Joyce's release, the family stayed in a boarding house in Tufnell Park, North London. As part of her bail conditions, Joyce had to live with them while she awaited trial. The parents and daughter shared a room. Joyce slept on the double bed with her mother and her railing father slept on a camp bed. December 8th, 1977, her first day of freedom, she beamed for the waiting photographers and greeted them with a hi y'all. Joyce McKinney and her mother and father spent the day sightseeing, touring London on a red double-decker bus. The UK tabloids were fascinated with the case of the manacled Mormon. <laughs> What were you thinking about all the time you were in Holloway? Um, well, 
but I wanted to get out and prove my innocence. I'm innocent today, was innocent yesterday, shall be innocent six months. What do, you, what do you think of London, now you've seen a bit of it? Ah, uh, like it. Initially, Keith May hadn't been so lucky to be immediately released on bail. He was still in Brixton prison, as details of his living arrangements were being confirmed. When asked about him, Joyce said, I'm so sad for him, I must go and see him. Keith May would also eventually be released to await trial the following year. The next month, in an odd twist, it was reported Joyce McKinney received a visit from police detectives who had travelled from America. When Joyce had lived in Hollywood, she had links to Evelyn Jane King. More commonly referred to as Jane King, she was one of the victims of the Hillside Strangler, who police believe was carrying out a number of killings throughout Los Angeles. Detectives hoped Joyce McKinney would share some insight into Jane King's murder, but sadly the only connection she had to the victim was that she moved into her flat a few months after Jane left. Although officers left empty-handed, it would be discovered that the Hillside Strangler, a moniker often used by the media, was in fact two killers, cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono Jr., who were later convicted of the crimes. Joyce McKinney was a frequent fixture in the UK tabloids and often remained in the public eye, an odd choice of celebrity considering the seriousness of the charges she was facing. Both her and Keith May had to report to Epsom Police Station every day. This morning, being Sunday, Joyce McKinney, once a North Carolina Sunday school teacher, was on her way to church. Not, however, directly to church. She went to the police station first. That's just part of the former Miss Wyoming's vastly changed lifestyle. The Epsom magistrates ordered... On March 23, 1978, Joyce was photographed with a broad grin at the premiere of the film Saturday Night Fever, where pictures emerged of her chatting to celebrities like Keith Moon, the drummer from The Who. On April 12th, she went to the premiere of The Stud, starring Joan Collins. Vanity Fair magazine ran an advert for McKinney, who said she was looking for an agent to help publicise the book she was working on. One day she hopes it may become a film. It'll be the Lord's way, she says, of providing for her, since the only money she has is whatever her sick One month before the trial was to take place at the Old Bailey on May 2nd, Joyce McKinney and Keith May, now daily fixtures in the tabloids, disappeared. During the middle of April 1978, Joyce McKinney and Keith May took a taxi to Paddington train station. From there, they went to the airport. It was first reported McKinney flew under the name Joan O'Connor and May under Anthony McGowan. It would later be revealed that the couple used fraudulent British passports to travel as their American ones had been confiscated in England to stop them skipping bail. 
The pair arrived at Shannon Airport in West Island on a British Airways flight from Heathrow. They left three hours later on Air Canada flight AC846 bound for Toronto, Canada. From there they flew to Buffalo, New York and then on to Cleveland. During the flight to Canada, Joyce McKinney wore large glasses, a long dark coat and a floral dress. Keith May was wearing a jacket and blue tinted glasses. Both of them wore dark, almost comical wigs. During the journey, they wrote to each other on notepads. McKinney and May informed staff at the airport via their notepads that they were profoundly deaf and mute and were travelling to perform in a mimed play in Toronto. For beauty queen Joyce McKinney, it was a case of now you see her, now you don't. Joyce made a bunk early one morning after reporting as usual to a North London police station. Within hours, she was heading for Canada. Once the public knew that McKinney and May had fled, Telephone calls came flooding in, claiming to have seen the pair. Interpol contacted the Mounties in Canada, requesting they kept an eye out for the couple. Inspector Bill Dawson of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Toronto was interviewed. It will be uh, strictly a matter of alerting, uh, alerting people in Canada, the various police forces and whatnot, that... Uh, Great Britain is interested in these people, and if they come to our attention that uh, Epsom Police Station are interested in knowing where they are. He went on to say that he had not been advised to put them under arrest. The, the instructions are not to arrest them, merely to advise Interpol that indeed they have been located. A travel agent who worked for Berman Travel in London remembered selling McKinney and May tickets for one of their flights. An Air Canada steward was also reported as saying there was something fishy about the two passengers on her flight. For a start, I did not believe they could not hear, as both responded to noises, she said. A fellow passenger on the flight, Larry Zavnik, spoke of the odd couple. He said Joyce was very good-looking, though heavily made up. They took no alcohol during the trip, he said, and had only soft drinks with their meals. Both appeared to sleep a lot throughout their journey. The girl had a cap pulled down over her eyes. By the time they landed in America, Joyce and Keith were dressed as nuns. Keith was undoubtedly less convincing, and Joyce McKinney tried to remedy that with some false eyelashes. She also stuffed tissue paper into a leopard print bra that Keith was wearing, although his masculine features and mannerisms could not be disguised by the nun's habit. The pair got off their next flight to Buffalo, New York, and kissed the tarmac. Joyce would later recall that at that moment she had tears in her eyes, and said, Thank you, Lord, for getting us all home. McKinney's parents had also returned to America before she absconded. After her time in England, Joyce was surprised at how much things had changed back in the States. She said, The cars seem so big, like something from the space age. I remember thinking that this must be how Britons feel visiting America for the first time.
Joyce got in touch with one of her old university roommates to ask for help and a place to stay, but was surprised when a former acquaintance was frosty and refused to play any part in what was going on. When Joyce was down to her last $100, she decided to make a call to Peter Torrey, who worked for the Daily Express newspaper back in the UK. The pair were known to each other, Tory had attended the stud film premiere with Joyce. Peter Tory went straight into his editor's office. I've got Joyce McKinney on the telephone and she wants to sell us her story, he said. Joyce wanted £40,000. Fuck me, his editor exclaimed. Fully aware of the readers it would bring, he responded. Well, give it to her, give it to her. There was no way Joyce McKinney or Keith May could step foot on British soil. Peter Torrey, accompanied by two other Daily Express staff, flew to America with the cash stashed neatly away in a suitcase. At the agreed meeting place, the Hilton Hotel in Atlanta Airport, Peter Torrey came face to face with McKinney and May. Though their appearance was not as he remembered, they had adopted a bizarre disguise dark grease paint covered their skin. Peter Torrey would later recall they looked like characters from a really bad amateur production of Alibaba. It transpired this was just one of the pair's many outlandish disguises. Joyce had adopted around half a dozen different looks which she listed off to the baffled journalists. This included a deaf person who was unable to speak, an Indian, a hippie, and a serious-looking librarian. Joyce was so paranoid the authorities were closing in, she insisted the party of two fugitives and British journalists move to a different hotel each day. After relaying her version of events, an article was published with the large emblazoned headline, My Undying Love and above in smaller letters, I still want my Mormon, Joyce tells The Express. In the article, she described the feeling she had for Kirk Anderson as love and said it was tender, profound and indestructible. A portion of the article read, I waited 24 years for a man like Kirk to come along to give myself to, and he was perfect. I'll always love him, and will probably never marry anyone else. Joyce still denied the alleged kidnap and rape of Kirk Anderson. She disputed the manacled Mormon label the press had given the case, saying she used ropes, not chains. Joyce continued to insist it was consensual. This whole thing about this bondage is the transference of guilt, she reportedly said. His being tied up at his request transfers the blame for sex to the partner. Mormon priests are taught to believe sex is not for pleasure. The Daily Express team had travelled to a Baptist church with Joyce, where she sang enthusiastically. She and Keith had been checking the newspapers every day in America for a mention of their names, but the bizarre case simply hadn't gathered anywhere near the amount of attention as it did in the UK. Joyce said she was poised to hear the announcement on the radio that would say something like, Be on the lookout for a blonde former Miss Wyoming, £128 Joyce McKinney, 
who left England while awaiting her trial. She is wanted for raping and kidnapping her 240-pound, 6-foot-3 fiancé, Kirk Anderson. She may be heading for the US. She is armed. Not forgetting to add her body measurements, Joyce exclaimed, 38, 24, 36. Joyce revealed she parted ways with her publishing agent after he refused to stump up the money for her and Keith's rent and living expenses while she began to write her memoir. Joyce talked to the Express about how she was perceived by the British public. She said Britons would always greet her with yay for Joyce and men had apparently written to her in their hundreds asking for her to kidnap and rape them. Joyce insisted she had done nothing wrong, garnering sympathy from the Daily Express readers as she spoke of having to sleep on a restroom floor at a truck stop due to her lack of funds. And this was all because her millionaire agent wouldn't help and the Mormon Mafia had stopped her finding work. Joyce mentioned her father's illness and how she couldn't see her parents in case journalists were waiting. A photograph on the front cover of the Daily Express exclusive was carefully crafted. McKinney, fresh-faced in modest clothing, a polo neck jumper, smiling while clasping a single rose between her teeth. The Daily Express released their Joyce McKinney exclusive on Monday, May 22nd, 1978. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Unbeknownst to the Daily Express, Joyce McKinney and Keith May, the Daily Mirror, another tabloid newspaper who were vying on an interview, became creative when they missed out on their exclusive. Some months earlier, in an attempt to unearth some of Joyce's past, more UK journalists travelled to LA to visit Steve Moskowitz, the man who Joyce shared a flat with. Joyce had told the Daily Express Moskowitz was just looking after her flat while she was gone, but he told a rather different story. His ex-partner, Joyce McKinney, had worked as a sex worker while she lived with him, and he had photographs and newspaper clippings from the back pages to prove it. Although he wasn't initially forthcoming, at first giving journalists fully clothed modelling shots, Moskowitz relented after he was provided with paid flights to England. He claimed to still love Joyce McKinney, and she was in the UK at the time he wanted to see her. However, he didn't want her to know he cooperated with the UK press, so a photograph was staged of a shock Steve Moskowitz taking McKinney's dog, which he was looking after at the time, for a walk. The UK journalist dug deeper still, looking into nude photography businesses and pornographic magazines. Not one of them had a record of any Joyce McKinney, but when they described her large shaggy white dog which she took everywhere, that was a light bulb moment and she was remembered but under a variety of different names. The Daily Mirror's headline read, The Real Joyce McKinney, and it was published on Monday, May 22, 1978, the same day as the Daily Express exclusive. A nude photo of Joyce McKinney was splashed over the front cover of the mirror in a juxtaposition to their rival paper, as further highly explicit images of Joyce line the inside pages. Peter Torrey, writing for The Express, was still with McKinney at the time she found out what the Mirror had published. She was furious and highly distressed, So much so, police were called to the hotel and paramedics were soon sent to sedate her. The next morning, Joyce's parents came to collect her, but she was still so angry she lashed out, biting her father on the arm and drawing blood. She then fled the hotel in her nightdress, narrowly missing the passing cars as she ran across a nearby highway. Anthony Delano, a journalist for the Daily Mirror, hurriedly released the book Joyce McKinney and the Manacled Mormon, published on June 16, 1978. 
The front cover featured McKinney only wearing a pirate-style jacket and holding a matching hat. Joyce was upset about its release and disputed its contents. She spoke on the phone to journalist Peter Gould. She was asked how the Daily Mirror had obtained the nude photographs. She was asked to explain why she posed nude. Joyce McKinney addressed the claims made in the book and newspapers about the services she provided, including a heavy breathing phone service. Joyce also spoke about her feelings towards Kirk Anderson. Author of the book Joyce McKinney and the Manacled Mormon, Anthony Delano, was interviewed and provided a somewhat different take on the events that unfolded. There's absolutely no doubt, you know, that she has an engaging, that she has the ability to engage people's attention, if not always their emotions. She, she often goes out of her way to uh, to make a strong impression if she, she finds she... Uh, once again, has a knack for singling out people that, that that she senses are likely to find her appealing, and that she in turn can make use of. Uh, and she concentrates. She can be very charming. She she concentrates all her considerable charm on them, and eventually uh, tries to bend them to her purpose. She she suffered under the sad delusion that she was an intellectual giant, uh, and also that she was 
physically irresistible, that she was uh, a genuine beauty. But when she insisted on entering beauty contests one after the other, about which she had an absolute obsession, um, you know, the poor thing was just dooming herself to disappointment because uh, classical, her lines were not. All was reasonably quiet on the case until October of that year, when Joyce rang a newspaper head office from where she was staying in Texas. The way I feel now when the book is out, it wouldn't bother me to be extradited to England, she said. I don't care really, I am just so fed up of fighting. So many lies have been told about me by the police and newspapers. That same month, Kirk Anderson returned to America to study at a university in Utah. Fifteen months since they had fled the UK, the FBI caught up with Joyce McKinney and Keith May at a mobile home where they were staying. However, extradition to the United Kingdom was not on the cards, as an application had not been processed. A spokesman, Sir Thomas Hetherington, the Director of Public Prosecutions in the UK, said, It would be very expensive to extradite. It wouldn't be in the public interest. If either McKinney or May returned to Britain, the law would then run its course. The reason for their arrest was they now face charges relating to illegally obtaining a passport. An FBI spokesperson detailed the charges. George McKinney and Keith Joseph May were apprehended by FBI agents at Asheville, North Carolina, without incident. Both McKinney and May were charged with making a false statement on the passport application in Seattle, Washington, McKinney and May both appeared before U.S. Magistrate J. Paul Teal, Jr., where their identities were established and bond was set on each of $10,000 surety bond. The trial date was set, but before it went to court, the magistrate instead ordered McKinney stay at a private psychiatric hospital for evaluation in Nashville during July 1979. She spent a couple of weeks under the care of mental health professionals before being released. Joyce McKinney could have received up to five years in prison and a $1,000 fine. It was also uncovered that she had obtained another passport in Britain by applying in the name of Kathleen Mary McGlenigan. Kathleen, who was from Smethwick, four miles outside Birmingham city centre, died years earlier in her teens during an operation at the Midland Centre for Neurosurgery. Members of the Mormon Church residing in Britain were concerned about the abduction and excessive press coverage that followed, believing it brought negative attention to the church. However, one missionary in Oxford found that the attention opened up a dialogue with the general public. He said, People who wouldn't normally talk to us now seriously want to discuss doctrines they first heard about through the court case. The spokesperson for the Mormon Church, Michael Otterson, was interviewed about Joyce McKinney 
and he addressed the allegation she made about being followed by Mormon representatives. If I can formally say that uh, as, as far as the suggestion that we've been uh, involved with McKinney or in, in any way interfering with the, the course of justice, let me say that neither the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints nor any of its representatives um, has initiated any contact, either direct or indirect, with Joyce McKinney. Um, and uh, in fact, there were two occasions when Miss McKinney telephoned me personally. She was told uh, on those occasions that uh, any communication between her and the church before her trial would be inappropriate. Uh, but I'm stressing that the, the initi initiation was on her part in that uh, exchange. Um, the, the second point I'd like to stress is that no missionary nor member of the church has been assigned nor asked to follow uh, or watch or monitor in any degree the activities of Joyce McKinney and Mr. Keith May. Uh, we're not aware of and uh, certainly wouldn't condone any such activity by members of the church. And uh, we certainly have not hired, investigated or commissioned any investigation of Miss McKinney or Mr. May in anything to do with this whole matter. This is a, a, a criminal prosecution brought by Scotland Yard for an alleged criminal act. The court will eventually decide whether that uh, prosecution is justified or not. We're not a party to the uh, prosecution. Uh, obviously, we are cooperating fully with Scotland Yard in, in what little we know. Uh, frankly, the police know far more about the situation than we do. And uh, uh, we are involved, if you like, as a spectator. Miss um, McKinney is alleged to have, uh, to have kidnapped one of our missionaries. It could have been the rent man that she'd uh, uh, kidnapped. Um, and so we are incidentally involved, but we are not. Kirk Anderson hadn't seen the last of Joyce McKinney. In June 1984, he was living in Salt Lake City with his wife and children. One day, McKinney followed him to his place of work at the local airport and waited outside. She was arrested later that day for disturbing the peace and providing false evidence to police. Her trial date was set for late July, but her attorney requested more time to prepare, which was accepted. The trial was delayed until September, after which she was cleared of all charges. This time the tabloids showed little interest in Joyce's arrest, and the subsequent short trial took up only a paragraph or two hidden amongst their pages. Some journalists showed cynicism at her motives for stalking Kirk Anderson all these years later, suggesting that her obsession had emerged again to fuel interest in her book that she was still writing. In 1989, Kirk Anderson briefly spoke to the Irish Independent newspaper. He was still residing in Salt Lake City, but was now working as a travel agent and living with his brother. He said, The things that happened were just, well, unfortunate. I am glad I have been able to get on with my life. The 1984 incident was the last time I had a problem with her, but whenever I say anything or do anything, she seems to get all riled up. I find the less said the better. It would be kind of like scraping a scab off an old wound you really just want to heal. In 1999, over 20 years after the scandal, 
the Irish Independent went to interview Joyce McKinney at her home she inherited from her grandmother. She lived in a farmhouse with her animals in a secluded wood on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. A few ponies and a pit bull terrier called Hamburger were her only companions. Two decades on from her infamy, Joyce McKinney now lived on disability benefits as she claimed her severe arthritis left her struggling with her mobility and sometimes she required the use of a wheelchair. She had lost touch with Keith May many years before. The last she knew he was a salesman for a Los Angeles plumbing supplies company. Joyce spoke about her life and recalled the incident in West Devon. However, her recollection of what inspired her actions had now changed. She claimed the book, The Joy of Sex, was the catalyst for tying up Kirk Anderson in a cottage all those years ago. Not from a psychiatrist's suggestion as she had previously testified in court. Locals and the few distant neighbours Joyce McKinney had were very cautious of her. When the journalists from the Irish Independent visited a nearby tavern, they got talking to the barman who asked, You know she is wanted in England for raping a man. Warning the journalist, he cautioned further, Be sure to leave your name, and if you don't pass by here in 12 hours, we'll be sure to call the sheriff. Rumours circulated of Joyce handing out nude photos of herself at the local Baptist church and that she had taken over sermons to tell the congregation about the evil ways of the Mormons. The journalist dug into her recent past and unearthed that the 1984 arrest wasn't the last time Joyce had had a run-in with the law. Tennessee police issued a warrant for her arrest following an allegation of solicitation and burglary. She was apprehended at a 4th of July funfair in North Carolina. After this, she spent some time in Charles A. Cannon Jr. Memorial Hospital, where toxicology tests were undertaken. Three unprescribed drugs were found in Joyce McKinney's system. Cocaine, morphine and cannabis. Five years later, during November 2004, Joyce McKinney was again in trouble with the police. She was caught in her van with a 15-year-old who she had allegedly goaded into committing a burglary. The charges she faced were criminal conspiracy to commit aggravated burglary and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. She later told her lawyer the theft was to get funds to purchase a wooden leg for her three-legged horse. She didn't turn up to court, and as she lived in a neighbouring state, the charges weren't pursued. A woman called Bernan McKinney had her face splashed over the news worldwide in 2005. The woman received a discounted rate of $25,000 to clone her beloved pit bull terrier, Booger. She had sold her home to raise the funds. Booger had died a few years before, 
but he was cloned using a tissue sample. McKinney had got Booger as a stray and claimed he naturally became an assistance dog without any training. He collected drinks from the fridge and aided his owner with her daily chores while she recovered from a dog attack. According to Vernon McKinney, another pet dog of hers had flipped out after it was given the wrong dose of medicine for some bee stings. McKinney said the dispenser at the chemist did it deliberately as they didn't like her. The dog attack left McKinney with substantial injuries to her hand and leg, but Booger had scared the other dog off. Now August 2005, she was pictured at Seoul National University Animal Hospital in South Korea, the gleeful owner of five adorable charcoal-coloured cloned puppies. An American woman received five puppies from a South Korean firm today that were cloned from her late beloved Pitbull. I believe that Booger was an angel that God rented out to me for a short period of time. He knew I was going to have tough times, so he sent him down to help me out. And he knew I'd be lost without him, so he sent me some more. He sent me five more mini Boogers. Yes, she sent mini Boogers, folks. The puppies were cloned by the biotech firm RNL Bio. The company is affiliated with the South Korean lab, which produced the world's first cloned dog. An issue arose when it was time to take them back to America. Not wanting to put them in the cargo hold, she was permitted one on her lap as she said it was a service dog. Still refusing to put the others in cargo, she tried to persuade other travellers to take them on the flight, but the passengers refused. She took one home, then flew back to Seoul for another, then another. When there were two left, she managed to persuade a fellow passenger to bring the other puppy on the flight. Vernon McKinney denied she was in fact Joyce McKinney at first and threatened to sue anyone who said she was. So where are we now? In 2011, director Errol Morris released a documentary called Tabloid. Morris is known for the acclaimed documentaries such as The Thin Blue Line and Gates of Heaven. In Tabloid, Joyce McKinney provided a contradictory account of the events of 1977 as well as the reasoning for tying up Kirk Anderson. Her now third explanation for the inspiration was that she read it in a Christian book. In the documentary, she also asserted that the first night in the cottage was the first time she and Kirk Anderson had slept together. She claimed the nude pictures published in the UK tabloids were in fact her head cut and pasted onto another woman's body. Journalists and photographers who covered the story in the late 70s were also interviewed for the documentary, and one insisted the images were not doctored, as he had seen the negatives. They were, however, later lost when his employers changed offices. During the filming of Tabloid, Joyce claimed her pickup truck was broken into and the evidence to prove the nude photographs had been doctored was stolen, along with the manuscript for the book she had almost finished writing. During the promotion of the film, Joyce toured with Errol Morris, attending talks and screenings. One such event was uploaded to YouTube. 
In the 12 minute, 10 second video, she claims the Mormon church is a cult and accuses the two journalists who also appeared in tabloid of breaking into her pickup truck, though she did admit that she had never met either of them. Then she turned. Joyce started attending screenings to cause a scene as she was unhappy with how she was portrayed. Trying to explain the circumstances of what happened, Errol Morris wrote to the New York Times saying, Joyce McKinney was provided limos, travel and expenses for a number of festival appearances. Joyce and I appeared together at the New York and Los Angeles openings and answered questions from the audience. She was interviewed for more than six hours for the movie and in no way was an unwilling subject. A lawsuit was filed in a Los Angeles court on Joyce McKinney's behalf. It read, The film promotes vicious and malicious lies about McKinney. It casts a positive light on various unscrupulous tabloid journalists who created the scandal and who repeatedly insulted and slandered McKinney, questioned her character and morality, and accused her of raping a 300-pound, 6-foot, 5-inch man. The film portrays McKinney as a prostitute. It portrays her as engaging in S&M for money, while flashing sex ads with pictures of women who are not McKinney. The lawsuit went on to claim that the documentary portrays her as an evil seductress, and she never authorised its contents. The court filing continued. The film uses a stolen, innocent photo of McKinney in a college musical. She seeks damages for misrepresentation of likeness, intrusion on seclusion, false light, defamation, intentional misrepresentation, fraud, breach of contract, intentional infliction of emotional distress, conversion, unjust enrichment, and violations of California business and professional code. The court ruled in Errol Morris's favour. During 2016, Joyce McKinney, approaching her late 60s, tried to claim those involved in the making of tabloid had threatened the life of her service dog and she had not signed a waiver to release the interview footage. She told The Hollywood Reporter, They offered me $75,000 to settle and I told them they could kiss my butt. They made millions off me. I am going to take it all the way to the end as I want my day in court. The case was eventually thrown out. Ultimately, only Kirk Anderson, Keith May and Joyce McKinney really know the truth about what happened in that cottage in West Devon. Kirk Anderson remains out of the spotlight and has often chosen not to speak publicly about the incident. Keith May passed away on June 13, 2004 from kidney failure. This leaves just Joyce McKinney. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters.
For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.